Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be welcoming Stephen G. Post. Stephen is a best-selling author, public speaker, researcher, and the founding director of the Center of Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. He is recognized internationally for his work focusing on unselfish and compassionate love at the interface of science, ethics, religious thought, and behavioral medicine. In addition, he is an expert on the spiritual and ethical aspects of caring for those individuals with dementia. For today's conversation, I will be joined by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. You had a pretty interesting childhood. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, thanks, Mallory. I was born on the south shore of Long Island, and there was not anything around other than an empty street and an empty beach. But fortunately, there was one house and one neighbor about a half a mile away His name was Mr. Muller, and he mostly adopted me. So I would go over to Mr. Muller's as a five or six-year-old, and and I'd ask him what I could do to help him out. Uh, He was a wonderful old guy. He had his nice wife. They were retired, and he taught me a lot of things. He taught me how to do carpentry. So we would would have uh, pine... um, wood and we would burn into it uh, a saying from a poem by Robert Frost or maybe um, a passage from scripture and then we would varnish it all over and we'd nail it up on the trees because there was a lot of trees around there wasn't anything else there and we had a huge uh, really you know a couple of hundred yard long pathway of incredible sayings. Um, Even um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. So Mr. Muller taught me a lot of things uh, and he would give me a little reward uh, when we had a particularly successful outing and that was wonderful. He would give me a nickel and he said, save your nickels for college. And he was a great clamor. Mr. Muller was a great clamor, and he was very prayerful about it. So we would go out on his flat boat on the Great South Bay, and he just knew where the clams were buried. No one else knew, but he knew somehow or another. He knew way ahead of time, and we would just go there, and we would start digging. And um, he was a huge influence on me. And even when I went to the University of Chicago many years later, my uh, dissertation director, James Gustafson, once commented that he thought um, more than any student there, I, I knew passages from uh, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. So that's where it began with Mr. Muller. So you referenced that you uh, went to the University of Chicago. Um, where did you go to undergrad? And then what did you go to the University of Chicago for? Well, I went to undergraduate uh, at a place called Reed College, which is in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I went there because they have a poet. They had a poet there at the time 
um, who I really wanted to uh, learn from. Uh, and, um, uh, and that was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was kind of a crazy place in a lot of ways, uh, but it went pretty well. And I, um, I went to the University of Chicago some years later. I had a modest career in immunology and in pediatric uh, uh, endocrinology as a, as a research associate. I was not a physician, but I was a pretty good scientist. Uh, but from my high school days, I really still wanted to go learn about the world religions. And there was no place better to do that than Hyde Park, Chicago. I mean, they had all the great people. They had Mersha Eliade. They, you know, they would have visiting uh, scholars like Joseph Campbell for whole semesters. And it was just incredible. So um, Chicago was the center of the study of global religions at the time. Uh, and it was a very exciting place to be. And there were a lot of people there interested in science and religion, which I was interested in. So those were the formative days of my life, you know, just um, hanging around 53rd Street and going to all the, the you know, the great old restaurants and, and bookstores, Powell's, you've probably been there, you know. Um, and I loved it there and, I, and um, they treated me very nicely. They didn't have to, but, but they did and it was wonderful. So when you were younger, you had a dream half a dozen times, um, and you refer to it as your blue angel dream. For those of us or for our listeners who have not read your book or know anything about this dream, can you describe what that dream was? I sure can. I went to a high school in Concord, New Hampshire, when winters were really cold. Um, and it was, it was called St. Paul's School, which is an Episcopal place. At that time, it was all boys. And it was a very Spartan lifestyle. I mean, there was nothing spiffy about it. And it was very disciplined. We had to go to morning chapel every morning at 7.30. Uh, you know, classes began at 8.30. Uh, it was very organized. It was very demanding academically. Uh, I had a lot of great people in my class, Charlie Scribner and Ned Perkins and all kinds of people. Um, but my main interest was actually um, sacred studies. That's what we called it uh, up there. And I've been interested in sacred studies and you know, basically world religions from the time I was about eight or nine years old, really partly due to Mr. Muller. And um, uh, St. Paul's was a great place for that. So I had a sacred studies teacher named Rod Wells, and he was a graduate of Yale Divinity School. He was a, an ordained Episcopal minister. He was a very close friend of Alan Watts, who was kind of a Buddhist Episcopal priest out in San Francisco. Uh, so we got along really well. And uh, we everybody read um, um, uh, Emerson's The Oversoul. Most of them read it for literary value, <laughs> you know, but I actually believed it. I believed in this idea that, well, maybe there really is one mind. Maybe there really is this original mind and we all participate in it and so that way we're more connected than we know we we're capable of all kinds of intuitions and premonitions and uh, creative uh, visions and so forth and it's not so strange if you think that there was originally one mind and uh, we participate in it 
even though we have individuality. So I believed that. That was Emerson. And uh, when I was 15, I had a dream, and it was a very peculiar dream, uh, which I talked about in sacred studies class with all my buddies. And they still thought, I still see them occasionally in New York, and they still talk with me about it. Um, but um, it was very early in the morning. I'd just woken up, but I wasn't really fully awake. It was kind of like, you know, betwixt and between, as they say, you know, it was a mystical moment. And I would, uh, I would see a road and I knew it was heading to the West. It was foggy, covered with uh, cloud type substance. And as I'm walking down this road, I look on my left because I hear a little sound and I see a young guy with dirty blonde hair leaning out as if to jump. I didn't know what to make of it. And as I'm looking at him, then suddenly I see a face and it's a woman's face. Of, uh, it looks like a, a blue angel of some kind uh, without all the wings and the like, but just a very empathic, loving, feminine face and voice. And it said to me, if you save him, you too shall live. If you save him, you too shall live. And then I proceeded to the West. Uh, the angel uh, disappeared, but the entire cloud cover uh, dissipated and it was a bright blue sky. So I called it my blue angel dream. <clears throat> and and uh, I would sit and talk with, uh, with people, actually Rod Wells, who was really interested in, in adolescent spirituality. Um, not everybody is. Some people just blow it off and they think it's craziness. But um, there's a wonderful woman, uh, I'm a friend of mine now, Lisa Miller at Columbia, who's a psychologist. She wrote a best-selling book a couple of years ago called The Spiritual Child. And she really finds out that there's quite a lot that can go on in the experiences of young people. So, um, you know, Rod took it seriously. And he, um, one afternoon, drove me to New Haven, which was south from Concord, New Hampshire. It's about a it was an easy four hour drive. Uh, and we drove down Prospect Street, went to Yale Divinity School. And um, there I uh, held forth in the class of James Diddies, who was a very famous Jungian psychologist of religion at the time. Uh, and he had a class for Masters of Divinity School students. The Div School students were planning to go into the ministry. Um, and it was on adolescent spirituality. So I sat down with this group of about 15 uh, people, mainly in their, you know, mid-20s and so forth, and, uh, and with Rod and with uh, Dr. Diddy's, and they asked me to tell them about the dream, and I told them about the dream. They had some really great questions. Well, for example, um, <laughs> were you feeling okay when you had the dream? And I said, no, I, I, was, I was feeling pretty good. I said, I, you know, I... I, I I, I wasn't working off a lot of demerits in the sun. You know, we would rake leaves in the sunshine. That wasn't it. I said, to my knowledge, I hadn't had any dyspeptic hot dogs. So I didn't think it could just be, you know, written off as some kind of physiological aberration. And, um, uh, you know, I wasn't having emotional difficulties uh, of, of any kind that I was aware of. So I was doing okay, although I didn't hang out with the 
rest of the guys. I didn't go to hockey games. I mainly spent my time walking through the woods around St. Paul's, which were really beautiful. And I would be, uh, you know, reading, uh, you know, Aldous Huxley uh, and all kinds of sort of mystical writings and different kinds of things. That's what I like to do. I was kind of peripatetic. You know, you walk around with a book in your nose and try not to hit a car. Um, but but that was what I was, uh, I, what I told them I was doing. And they said, so did this dream, uh, did it result in any action that you took? And I said, well, no, but strange thing. Um, I said, I did decide that I was going to apply to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And nobody from St. Paul's ever applied to Reed. I mean, they all went to East Coast places. Some went to Chicago, you know, um, maybe they went to Berkeley. But I was going to, uh, to do this, and I wasn't sure why, but I just felt that somehow I had to be open to the idea of going to the West. And, and, and uh, so I explained that to them, and they were kind of intrigued by it. Um, anyway, this session was fun, and, and, and after uh, we, we finished up, I, I played some classical guitar in the Yale Chapel. I was a pretty decent classical guitarist growing up. And, um, and then Rod and I uh, went home, and I, you know, I had the dream six times in a period of a year, and it didn't recur after that, but it was interesting. It was sort of you know, bi-monthly, and, and I had no idea what to say about it. And in classes, you know, my friends uh, you know, would, would say, well, you're just making that up. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I probably am. I wasn't sure it meant a damn thing, you know, because uh, people create meaning. I mean, I, I think teenagers especially, they're, they're looking for meaning. They're looking for something in their lives. And, um, and for all I knew, this was just my imagination. And I acknowledged that. And I said, so I, I don't have any idea if we should take this seriously. But the fact that it had recurred six times meant something to me because I thought, you know, I've never had a recurring dream before. Not that I had lots and lots of dreams, but I had some dreams and they never recurred. So that was very interesting. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years, I'm headed for Swarthmore and um, I'm, I'm in New York at my parents' place on Long Island. And Rod had gotten me a job in uh, the Bronx tutoring kids that summer. And I liked tutoring. See, there was a school across Pleasant Street from St. Paul's. It was called the Melville School. And it was mainly, you know, poor kids, French Canadian backgrounds, um, some of them were great hockey players, boom, boom, Jeffrey on, Rocket Richard and so forth. But anyway, these were little kids and, um, and I was a good tutor for them. And I just, I just, I realized that I liked doing that a great deal. Um, and I also used to do things with the Alzheimer's patients at the Christian Science resting home, which was in the other direction on Pleasant Street. So I love that kind of thing. And um, it was a perfectly safe job, but my parents put their, feet down. They said, no, Stevie, you cannot do this. It's too dangerous. We argued this out for like, you know, two or three days. And my mother finally got really frantic. And she said, look, if you insist on this, I'm not covering you for Swarthmore. And I said, well, mom, maybe I'll reconsider it. So I said, if I, it was, it was a tough argument. And I said, look, if I don't do this, what will I do? I mean, I, I need a summer job. So my dad, Henry A.V. Post, we'll hear about him. Henry Post, he was the 
uh, executive vice president at the time of W&J Sloan's department store, which was a big fancy department store on Fifth Avenue, right across from Scribner's Publishing. It's long since ceased to exist, but, but it was a, something special at the time. And uh, he knew all the manufacturers around greater New York, you know, lamp factories, lampshade factories, furniture factories, couch factories, all the artists and everything under the sun, all the designers. And so he said, well, I got something you can do. You can work in Bill De Bono's lampshade factory. I had met Bill De Bono once before. He was a nice Italian guy, a uh, big cigar, and uh, he ran a lampshade factory in Patchogue, which was not a great place. Um, so I said, okay, dad, I'll give it a try. So my dad had a secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which had seen a lot better days and had been a lot in the shop, you know? And, um, and, he, and he said, well, you can drive this to build a bonus. He had another car. So I drove this to the lampshade factory. It was about a 40 minute drive. And I spent the entire day, uh, five days a week for two weeks, uh, on an assembly line cutting cardboard between two very nice, very large Italian women. And um, I did an okay job, but this was not something that I could tolerate very long because, you know, I was reading Siddhartha and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So one Friday night, I, I just decided, you know, I'm not going back home. I'm driving out to West Hampton Beach, which was kind of a hangout. And I had a couple of friends uh, Livy Sutro, Chris Gressoff, and a gal friend named uh, Lee Conklin out there. And I said, I'm going to go out and just, you know, spend the weekend in West Hampton Beach, which is a kind of a wild street scene in a way, you know, and, uh, um, but I didn't drink, I, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, you know, into, into bad behavior in any way, shape or form. I was really pretty, pretty, pretty spiritual from a young age. And, um, uh, so about 11 o'clock at night, I told my friends, look, I am not going to work in that lampshade factory anymore. I'm going to follow the dream. And Livy, who who's, I still am in touch with, he was like, shop, what do you mean? I said, I'm going west. They all knew about the dream. So I got in my dad's car and I had about 50 bucks. Um, I did fill it with gas and I went west on the Sunrise Highway. I went west through the Midtown Tunnel. I went across Manhattan. I'd never driven over the George Washington Bridge, but I knew that was west. So I followed the signs for the George Washington Bridge. And then when you get over the bridge, there's like, there's two signs, okay? One sign says 95 South, like if you wanna go down to Philly or Washington. The other sign says 90 West. And I was, of course, going on 90 West. There's no question about it, because that's where I thought I was headed. So I went on 90 West, and about uh, five in the morning, I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania, actually um, at the exit near Bucknell University, where my daughter eventually, many years later, would go. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm doubting my intuition. I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to do a U-turn over the midway. I'm going to drive this car back home and my reputation will be completely untarnished. Unfortunately, but fortunately, it's a paradox. Cars back in those days um, had generators. And when the generator went, all the power was just completely gone in a second. So the lights went out, the engine stopped, and I just was able to get over on the right. 
uh, shoulder. And there's nothing I can see for miles. And there's nothing, it's, well, first of all, it's not much light, but it's just fields and there's no phones or anything like that. And, and, um, and so I, I did the only thing that a thoughtful 17 year old kid would do. Um, I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote in pencil to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory, 516-669-5655. I had my classical guitar, I had a couple of books, I had some junky articles of clothing. I got out, I put my thumb, and then it just somehow, the journey took me. Uh, and uh, I didn't really, I got to Chicago, actually. That was my first stop because I, uh, there was a truck driver named Gary. And he dropped me off at Grant Park. And it was one of these events at that particular t you know, period of time. And there were a lot of hippies out there. And, the, and after a few days, a bunch of hippies gave me a ride in their VW microbus. Um, and we were just outside of Lincoln, Nebraska, heading west on 80. And one of these young gals said, you know, you should really call your mom. Because you have to realize, been, it's been now at least um, what, maybe five days since I left home, maybe six. So I, I reluctantly said, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. And I, so I, I, there was a pay phone and they pulled over. And I called Collect, of course. And, and, and my mom answered the phone and she said, oh, Stevie, you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. They're detectives, okay? Pinkertons are detectives, right? Like an obnoxious kid. I said, but mom, why'd you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? <laughs> that was terrible. Anyway, I got out to California. My cousin, George Lamont, um, lived in the Mission District on Chenery Street. And he'd done a couple of tours of duty in, in uh, Vietnam. He was a great guy. Um, so I, I lived with George for... A month and a half or so, I I went down to the Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist Temple, um, which was on Market Street, and we chanted Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. Uh, we um, I played classical guitar in Hispanic restaurants, uh, and it was a really interesting time. But I also drew a really bad number for the draft, and I did not want to go to Vietnam, so I called the Reed College people. And I said, look, I know I turned you down because I had applied and I had gotten accepted, but I decided to go to Swarthmore instead. So I said, what I want to do is really reconsider Reed. And I'll tell you why. So I explained that to them. And they said, yeah, you can come up. So early in the morning, it's like 7, 7.30 in the morning. I'm um, in front of the temple. I've got George, an old, an old mentor named Gus and some other people. And they give me something as a going away present. Your, your listeners will not have heard of it. It's called a go home zone. You can, if you Google it, you'll see there's lots of stuff in Wiki on go home zones. And so this was a scroll and, and they unscrolled it. And I, and I, I, Gus explained some of the different symbols. I put it in my backpack and um, remarkably caught the bus uh, got all the way to Golden Gate Park, walked across the park, and there's the base of the bridge. You can actually see it in the background here. That's the base of the bridge. 
and um, and I walked up the base. On the left side, there was a pedestrian walkway, um, and I got about halfway up the bridge to the middle of the bridge. It was foggy. Uh, There's just a lot of mist coming up from the bay below, and I'm I'm hearing something, some little sh- shuffling sound to my left, and I look, and there is a guy. Now, whether it was exactly the same guy, I'm not going to swear to it, but there was a guy on the other side of the um, uh, of the of the railing, leaning out on the ledge, as if to jump, and I looked at him. And he caught me out of the corner of his eye. And I said to him, I truly hope that you don't plan to jump. I, by the way, have to say that over the course of my career, I probably talked about 10 or 15 young people out of suicide. Somehow I had a knack for it. So in a very quiet way, I said, I truly hope that you don't plan to jump. And he looked at me and he was furious because this was like his sacred moment on the bridge. And he started quoting uh, Macbeth, you know, life is empty nothingness. And he got really, really aggravated. And I said, you know, it's so convincing when you're out there on a ledge. It's a lot more convincing than it was when we did it in Memorial Hall at St. Paul's. And, and so we struck up this conversation. I said, look, he said, I really don't want you to jump. He said, why not? I said, well, let me tell you why I think maybe I'm here. So he said, okay. I explained it to him. I said, two and a half years ago, in New Hampshire, 3,000 miles away. And a long time back, I had a dream. And in that dream, I explained it, you know, I think I saw you in that dream. And he didn't believe it. He thought it was just complete garbly gook. But I still say, you know, it kind of looked like you. And so I, I explained to him that I'd had the dream. I'd gone to Yale Div. I, I had um, had this argument with my parents. I'd left my dad's car in the middle of Pennsylvania with a note to the Pennsylvania police. <laughs> you know, I, I told my mom, I gave him all the details. I kind of strung it out and got him into the flow of it. It was like Arlo Guthrie with Alice's restaurant, you know, and sort of got him engaged in it. And, and he, he quieted down. He quieted down. Um, I don't think he was on drugs, but I think he was just very aggravated. And so then I said, look, his name was Harry. I said, if you want to change your life around, I'm going to give you something. And he said, what's that? And I pulled this scroll out of my backpack, which was the Gahone Zone, which I'd just gotten like an hour earlier, hour and a half earlier. And I said, if I give this to you, it's going to turn your life around. Because Buddhists are like that. They'll give you a little lucky charms and so forth. So I said, but for me to explain this to you, you have to come on this side of the railing to where I am, and then we'll talk. And he actually, reluctantly, he did that. And we talked for a while, and I unscrolled the thing, and I, here's a symbol that means basically universal mind or consciousness. Here's a symbol that means uh, 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 heart and so forth. And we, we went through this a bit, and, and, I, and, and I said, look, I'm going to give this to you, but on one condition. Um, you have to take the bus to my cousin George's. So I wrote a note. Cousin George, this is Harry. Please let him sleep on the floor exactly where I slept. Take him down to the te- to the temple, introduce him to Gus, and take care of him for a while. And um, so he said, okay. So I gave him the, the cajon zone. I gave him the note. And he walked south on the bridge toward the park. And, of course, I was going north toward Oregon. And 
just as we parted ways, all of the, the mist from the morning uh, dissipated. And it was this shockingly bright blue sky. It was dramatic. And it so reminded me of the dream. So I walked, <laughs> I walked down that bridge. I got down to the base of it. I stuck my thumb out. This truck came by, a little truck. It was like a, I think it was a green Ford Ranger or some kind. The guy flung the door open. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Oregon. He said, well, I can get you most of the way. My name's Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, just like in Dill Pickle. And this here's my wife, Dorothy. And she waved and I had my ride. But I just felt like somehow the whole thing was so perfectly set up from, from beginning to end. And it suggested to me that, you know, Emerson was right, that there really is this kind of synchronicity, this kind of experience we have, which is just too perfectly orchestrated maybe, or set up to just be attributable to pure chance. And, and then it goes on from there. I got up to Oregon and like, I, I mean, I could tell you about running into Ken Kesey up there, which was Wait, interesting. Walk me through, All right, I, have, I have so many questions. Yeah. Can we start with when you when you're at the bridge yeah. and you see the person that you saw in your dream, you you were calm. I would have been the amount of swear words that would have come out of my mouth would have, you know, you'd have had to bleep it, you know, for for an hour. <laughs> but but you were calm. You walked over to him, you explained what was going on. See, to me, that would have been a what is going on moment. I, it, and the first thing I would have said is you realize if you jump then my life is on the line too, because the threat in the dream was that I needed to save you in order for me well, to live. Yeah, although <laughs> right? I have to say, I wasn't quite thinking of it exactly in those terms. I, I just saw a guy who was leaning out on a ledge and it looked to me like he was about to go. And I was shocked. I mean, could I say, he was, you know, precisely this was the kid in my dream. I don't think, I mean, but he was, you know, he was a little older than I was. He had the stringy blonde hair. He kind of looked it, looked the part. And so I just very quietly, I, I you know, I, I just, I just said, I truly hope you don't intend to jump, and and that that settled them. And and um, you know, when I was at Case Western, I mean, there, there was a, I think this is in the book too. There was a kid who was 19 years old. He he tried to kill himself. He drunk all kinds of Drano and things, and none of the psychiatrists could make any headway with him. So they called me. I'm not an MD, you know, they called me in to talk with them. And I, I, I've over the years had a, had a little bit of a knack of kind of getting empathically connected with these people and being able to um, speak with them in a kind and a calming fashion and kind of change their emotional state. So, so um, and to this day, I work, I, I do some work in the uh, psychiatric emergency unit where they do the, 72-hour non-voluntary uh, commitments with some of the really difficult people because um, the psychiatrists know that I just have a neck, with, you know. And and uh, but that's what I did, and, and and yeah, that's. So I wasn't I wasn't um, uh, completely freaked out or anxious. I mean, I was obviously um, it was intense. And I was shocked by by this experience, but I just you know I I, I just carried on. Do you think um, that angel in your dream uh, was a spiritual angel sent to to tell you to do this, 
So that's a great question. Um, you know, in the dream, it wasn't, you know, sort of a big winged creature. It was a, it was a calming feminine voice and face. If you save him, you too shall live. And it just felt like a dream, a, 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 an angel, you know? And so uh, I, and I wasn't sure if I believed in angels, uh, certainly at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the whole thing intuitively um, was orchestrated, was set up. Uh, I mean, it was too perfect. Like even a few, you know, I mean, some months later, I was actually taking a course called Alchemy 101. This is not in the book with Steve Jobs, who was also at Reed. And it was sort of a combination of uh, medieval science uh, with um very advanced physics, quantum physics. And, you know, there are a lot of very good physicists today who talk, even people at the University of Chicago, shockingly, who talk about the possibility that somehow even the physical world is energetically connected with our minds and, and, and with something that is completely mysterious. And, and so when the car, so when the, so when the car broke down, I thought either, there's two possibilities. Um, one, it just broke down and that's the end of it. But the other thing was that, wait a minute, um, when the car broke down, it was a sign, call it angelic if you want, it was a sign that I was supposed to actually go west because I was thinking about turning around. See, I would I was, take it the other way, right? Yeah. Because if, if the car hadn't broke down, you said you thought about turning around. I, I was, you could I was have kept pretty going much west. going to do that. Yeah, I was going to pretty much do that. But see, I would have thought kind of where Stephen is, like the car broke. It didn't want me to turn around. It stopped me from turning around. So now it's like, how do I continue? Whereas I'm thinking probably like it's a sign yeah. the car stopped, so I should stop. Whereas it's more of a, you were going to make that move. You were going to do the U-turn, but it yeah. stopped you from doing that. Stopped me from doing that. So that was, you know, that was Alchemy 101, if you will you know, at work in the universe. Well, what I think is interesting, Stephen, is years later, um, you find out about Chagall and yeah. the windows of the Good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. And that is, again, this blue angel, this theme popping back up into your life. Can you explain that a little for our listeners who maybe don't know about Chagall or the windows and how your life and his kind of mirror with pushing yeah. back on what your parents want versus what you want. Yeah, I mean, Chagall became important. So when I got out of Gary's truck on Michigan Avenue, right in front of Grant Park, and there was a hippie happening going on there, you know, that's near the uh, Art Institute. And I actually had a chance, to, to, I'd, I'd never been to Chicago. I went into the Art Institute um, and I saw the Chagall windows there, the big, beautiful Chagall windows that you see sort of when you first come in. And that was really the first I'd ever heard anything of Chagall, but it struck me at that time that somehow this guy, I don't know where, where he was coming from, what his experiences were, uh, what school of art he represented, but he seemed like a blue angel guy. So put Chagall on hold for a long time. But um, eventually, you know, after um, the U of Chicago and, after being in Ann Arbor, Michigan for a couple of years and, and uh, so forth, I got a job at the Fordham University Marymount campus, which is 
in Terrytown, New York, just across from what was then the Tappan Zee Bridge. Now they call it the Mario Cuomo Bridge. And, um, and there's a little event that occurs there, which I won't go into, but I, I, I had an office mate at, at, uh, at the university and his name is Gabriel Gomez. He's actually, he's from Bangladesh, but he, his family had been converted by Jesuits centuries ago and he was a Catholic. And he was a great scholar of world religions. So we shared the same office space and our desks were, our seats were like back to back, you know? And Gabe asked me, so how did you get into this? You I mean, you quit science and you, you, you went to the Divinity School of Chicago and you've been doing all these things. What got into you? And I said, well, I, to be honest with you, Gabe, I, I, had, a, I had a dream when I was a kid and, and it sort of shaped my life. And, and he asked me about it. So I explained to Gabe the Blue Angel dream. And he just right away, he said, you have, you have to walk out the door. You have to go around the reservoir and you have to go to the Rockefeller Preserve. Uh, that's a little area just on the other side of Terrytown and go to um, the Union Church and then tell me what you see. So I did that. It's about a 20 minute walk. Um, and I, I got over to the Union Church in Peconico Hills, which is actually the, you know, the name of the little Rockefeller enclave where, where John D. had his home and all that stuff. Um, and it's a beautiful uh, stone uh, church. And on the back wall, the entire back wall, people can Google this, is a blue stained glass window. And it's called the Good Samaritan. And it's really structured after this angel vision. And, and I was absolutely astonished by it. And, it, 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 and by, by the way, also in that, in that little Union Church, that's where Chagall did his famous images, stained glass windows of all the major and minor prophets. So it's the only place in the world where you can sit down with you know, a, a Presbyterian Bible in your hand and be leaning your shoulder on a Chagall window. You know, which is kind of cool. So I, I still like the place, but um, it really struck me. And so I went, I went, I went home, and I started to study Chagall pretty carefully. And I ran across a book that he had written in 1920 in Moscow, and it was the first autobiographical reflection that he produced. And it is called My Life. And in it, he talks about growing up in a little Russian city. And, you know, he, obviously he came from a very uh, Jewish background. It was a Hasidic background, uh, kind of fiddler on the roof type stuff. And um, his dad had a factory <laughs> and he pickled herring and he wanted his son to work in that factory. But Chagall did not want to be a factory worker the rest of his life. But he didn't yet know that he was an artist. He really didn't know. So. Believe it or not, when he was 17, he ran away. So he didn't have to work in the factory. And he actually went west toward St. Petersburg. And in St. Petersburg, he slept in the streets. And I will say, I spent a couple of nights on Telegraph Avenue and all those kinds of places in Berkeley. Um, and what he did was he started sketching for little bits of pocket change. Uh, he wasn't a, a full-blown artist yet, but he turned out to be a pretty good sketcher. 
And so one night, uh, and he describes this beautifully, and I actually, it's the only excerpt that I put in God and Love on Route 80. He, he's in an alleyway and he's sleeping on a mattress and there's a big guy who's like a construction person, bearded and so forth. And um, they're kind of sharing space uh, on, a, on a mattress and, and, and Chagall is sort of you know, tucked against the wall. And then um, he has this numinous experience um, where suddenly the whole alley fills up with blue and white and he sees a winged angel, a blue angel with white wings. And he feels very peaceful. He feels very calm. He feels so serene in that moment. And then lo and behold, the angel ascends leaving this stream of blue in the alley. And so the next day, Chagall does a painting. I think it, it, I believe it was his first painting and it's called The Blue Angel. And um, well, it's actually the technically, the, 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 there's a subtitle. The actual main title is The Apparition, The Apparition. So if you Google it's The Apparition and then you see the blue and white angel. And um, so he didn't know what he was there in St. Petersburg for, but he was there to discover his mission in life because when he died, he died, he was a very old man in his late nineties. He was in a, in, a, in, a, in a studio outside of Paris. What was, he, what was he painting? He was painting a blue angel. And he said, blue is the color of love. So I, I really, I actually taught a course on Chagall when I was at Fordham uh, in the religious studies department. And uh, it was all about Carl Jung and symbolisms and, and, and all kinds of things. But Chagall was the major figure in it. So um, to make a long story short, um, years later, I've been, I had been um, 20 years at Case Western Medical School teaching medical humanities, a lot of stuff about deeply forgetful people and doing clinical ethics and consultations and all the kinds of things that you do in that environment. Um, and I brought together the humanities and spirituality and, and clinical activities in a very intriguing and exciting way. And I, I loved Cleveland. Cleveland was beautiful. Uh, but somehow, you know, for different reasons, I had to leave. I was reluctant. I take this job at Stony Brook because they want me to start a center that really studies and teaches medical students and clinicians compassionate care. So I'm, 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 I'm doing that. And, and my, what happens is I'm invited back to Peconico Hills to do a talk on Chagall because a woman actually named Jacobson who's like a world-class expert on Chagall was talking about Chagall and they wanted me to be her respondent. So I responded and I gave a little talk on spirituality of Chagall. Uh, my friend Tom Frutig from Cleveland actually came all the way out on the Amtrak train to be there. I mean, it was really quite a wonderful evening. And then it starts raining like cats and dogs. And I get, I get in my car and I drive um, south and I drive over the, the um, Throgs Neck Bridge. And I get into Stony Brook and it's got to be like, you know, 11, well, it's almost later than that. It was more like, I think it was more like one in the morning. I can't even remember exactly. But I got in and it was, and, 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 I, I went to my computer and I had um, an email from DeRay Ahmad, who's a very famous uh, Islamic feminist who lives in Lahore, Pakistan. 
And she said, have you gone to your website? So I started this institute with Sir John Templeton, which he named, called the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. And we'd done studied, we'd done research and funded research all over the country on not just human love, but also the love that made humans, a sort of spiritual experience of love that poets describe as being almost invasive and so forth. And so we actually done some really good things. We did a book with Oxford um, um, uh, on this topic. And, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I get this, uh, this email from, from Duray and, and it says the, the website's been completely taken down. And I went there and it was just the ISIS imagery is the black ISIS flag. Um, and it said, um, um, there, there was some language there. Uh, and, 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 and it turns out that that was just, you know, several months after that first summer when there were a lot of beheadings going on in the Middle East. So I was kind of astonished and I didn't know what to do. Um, so I talked with my board members, most of whom, they were all on the website, most of whom were in Cleveland, you know, and we decided that we would have an international youth essay contest that would allow young people to compete, uh, to talk in their essays about how they, on a sort of an experiential level, were successful in pushing back against peer pressure to hate other people who were wanting them to hate uh, hate those same people just because they didn't share their beliefs. So we, my goodness, we got thousands of essays from people in different age groups, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. We had an international um, a group that judged these things. And as I was doing the, um, the assessment and kind of collating things, I was also co-chairing the UN Population Fund uh, project on uh, spirituality and global health, which was a lot of fun. So I was going to New York and I was doing that. And, I, and there's just a lot of indigenous, all kinds of indigenous people, all kinds of people. It was really pretty exciting. And we, we wrote up a report that had some influence. Um, uh, and so they heard about this because somehow I was talking about it over a cup of coffee with a bunch of people. And they invited the Institute to be the, the chief um, venue for the August, if I can get this right, the August 16th World Youth Day convened at the UN. And so lo and behold, you know, the word went out and we filled the entire UN headquarters, entire UN headquarters with young people from all over the, co the country, many people from abroad. The winners were, you know, came in on flights because I had some Templeton money to do that kind of stuff, you know. And, and even uh, the, uh, uh, Joanna Kajaska, who's with the Emerson String Quartet played and Pastor Otis Moss, who is Oprah's mentor, and, you know, was the former chairman of Morehouse College, uh, you know, run, ran the institutional Olivet Baptist Church in inner city Cleveland, was my great friend and wrote the foreword to why good things happen to good people. Pastor Moss is still my, my mentor. He's like, gotta be 85 now, but he's fantastic. So um, um, we filled the whole place and they gave great speeches and the, 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 the kids did their talk. Some of them did it rap style. Some of them did it like almost bipolar poetry. Others sang operatically. It was just incredible, you know, and got in the papers. 
And and that night, um, you know, my son and my daughter, you know, came in for it. My wife was there. There's a lot of photography from it on the website. Um, but I thought to myself that night, you know, this really is uncanny, and it's it's still Route 80. You know, it's still it's still just sort of the Blue Angel dream. It's like a thread of the dream that I had when I was 15. So you've spent your life in science and in religion. How do you reconcile the two? Well, I think I was a little bit, um, I was divided. Um, you know, I, I, I liked the healing sciences, you know, so I was interested in biology. I was interested in the things I did once I, I mean, when I got out of college, I came back to New York and I worked in a dialysis center. I was a licensed dialysis technician in the Manhattan Dialysis Center, which is a story in and of itself, you know. And I actually told one, one, one New Year's, it was a really depressing New Year's and all these people were around the table. There's like 30 people in these jerry chairs and they've all got these, these big butterfly needles in their arms and their, in their bovine crafts and they're having blood pressure drops. And it was a tough night. And, and uh, I, uh, I, I, gathered, I, I gathered everybody together and I told them my story of the Blue Angel dream and leaving the car on Route 80. There was this wonderful little Jewish lady. She said, she was laughing. She said, you know, that's very fun, but you shouldn't do that. So um, anyway, um, yeah, so, so I, I mean, I was interested. I went, I went, I worked in, in pediatric endocrinology for a year at Cornell with Maria New, who's now the National Academy. And then I went to Penn in, with, a, with a PhD NIH scholarship to do um, uh, microbiology and immunology. But after a brief period of time, I realized, you know, anybody can do, not anybody. I mean, science is a hard thing to do, but, but to do it well. But, but I thought, you know, I'm called to do something different. And so then I quit. I absolutely, I flat out quit. And I went off to Chicago. And I wound up um, doing a lot of work at this interface of science and world religion, science and theology. Um, and, and I never had any intent actually of going back into the medical world, but my last year of Chicago, the people there kind of got wind of the fact that even though I was doing humanities and teaching core humanities in the college and a div school student that I knew something about the sciences. So they recruited me to teach at the Pritzker school and in a course on social issues in medicine. So that's what I that's what I was doing at the time. And then from there, it just unfolded. And I wound up in Ann Arbor for a couple of years and then in, in, you know, in, at Fordham. And then in 1988, uh, they were starting a program in medical humanities at Case Western Medical School. And that's a very nice place to be. And, and I, didn't, I knew nothing about Cleveland, but uh, I went there and it, it turned out to be really miraculous. Um, so how, this, how so, do you how do you put the two of them together? How, how does well, you know, how do they interact with each other? Do you think you can have yeah, obviously you think you can have religion and, and trust in science? Well, spirituality, yes. I mean, religion can sometimes um, be a little doctrinaire in ways that are not easily justified um, scientifically. But I think that the best um, religions embrace the latest in physics and the latest in the medical sciences and 
they, 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 and in fact, if you look historically, the greatest theologians, not just Teilhard de Chardin, but Thomas Aquinas himself, they were all taking in the latest Aristotelian science, you know? And so the, the, the idea that there's a conflict between the two um, is really quite idiosyncratic to a particular, couple of particular times in history. But for the most part, if you look at all the great Islamic theologians, all the great Jewish theologians, all the great Christian theologians, they were all very much in, um, appreciative of whatever we could learn um, about the world around us, because after all, um, you know, it is God's creation. So do you see science as uncovering God's creation then? Yeah, for the most part, um, for the most part. And I don't think that um, people who are great scientists are by any means necessarily atheistic. I mean, Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institutes of Health. So I actually ran into Francis in Ann Arbor because he was the head of the genetics department. And I was living on North State Street with my wife and our little daughter, Emma, uh, who was you know, like one and two years old back then. I loved Ann Arbor, Michigan, it's a great town. Um, I call I call Harvard the Michigan of the East. By the way, <laughs> you'll be happy. Now. I know I like you, Stephen. And you're I, speaking in, his language. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and you know I love Chicago because in Chicago, people really are free. They 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 they, they have diversity in all things, including thought. It's kind of important. The university, you know. So Michigan has that. Uh, I, I love Michigan. And so I was there and, and, and Francis, his wife had died and, and he was actually going to a church in the, in the village. And he was now thinking about um, genetics and the sort of the building blocks of life. And, and do you need to have a, an energy behind it to make it really happen? Because it's so uncanny. It's so improbable. Um, it was, it was very synchronistic, he thought. And, so he went on, you know, to a great career, um, and and he just won the Templeton Prize a year ago uh, for his book called *The Language of God*, which is about genetics, you know. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I mean, uh, Paul Davies at at, uh, at Arizona, um, who runs the um, the Origins Institute, he's a great mathematician, great physicist. He wrote. The mind of God and the majority of physicists believe that there is an intelligent mind behind the universe. They just don't think that these thermodynamic constants and the beauty of mathematical principles could just somehow flip into the universe without a little bit of planning. Uh, John Barrow, who actually coined the term the anthropic principle, is my good friend. He was at Cambridge University at Trinity College. He just died last year. But he's the one who coined the expression anthropic principle that somehow the, the universe we live in is just had to be perfectly set up to give rise to life and a life form like our own. So um, more and more and more, and boy, you know, you, you, you go to the noetic science people and you, you look at their work on uh, um, uh, field theory and, and all kinds of things, you know, it's, it, I think that the, you know, as, as we move toward the future, and Sir John really, Sir John Templeton really believed in this, I think what we're going to find is that a very new appreciation for the synergy between really good science and really good spirituality um, really comes into the foreground and is really well demonstrated too. 
So that's why, you know, you go to a bookstore, if you go to a bookstore now, uh, uh, but you'll see whole sections on science and, and religion. But Chicago, see, the University of Chicago Divinity School is a special place. Actually, Chicago, that, that's, if you want to study world religion, there's no place like it. And they had Langton Gilkey, I mean, Eliade, all these great people. And they were all at the interface of science and religions. And none of them thought that there was a, a conflict. They called it the, the Chicago empirical tradition. They thought that science should drive theology. One of the things that you talk about in the universality of religions is do unto others as you'd have done unto yourself. Now, each religion or theology has a different wording of that, but effectively that's what it comes down to. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of doing that scientifically? Yeah, and when you have a religion that doesn't ground itself in that positive version of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, you better look twice because it couldn't be a very good religion. Yeah, so uh, you know, I've, I, I mean, this is partly rooted in the in 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 the Blue Angel Dream. If you save him, you too shall live. That if you help others as a byproduct, in in likelihood, you'll benefit yourself. It doesn't it's not a reciprocal thing. It's not like a pay it back type deal, but it's just that there are internal benefits. Friends of mine did a did a paper on widows and widowers and how they they do better after they've lost their spouse of a happy marriage for many years <laughs> that's important <laughs> if they if they can self-report that they've been helping people in the neighborhood or helping people through their spiritual community just doing things to help others you know and um that you know they get through this period of bereavement more quickly and in a more um in, in a more, in, in a deeper way, in a deeper way. And, and so this article came out in one of the psychology journals and there's a New York Society of Widows and Widowers, believe it or not. And they were having their annual meeting in Manhattan uh, at that Marriott hotel that I think now is closed for good uh, with this COVID business. But um, so they, they said, would you come in and give a talk? So I went and gave a plenary talk. And at the end there was time for Q and A and I, I I, I said, anybody have any questions? There was a guy in the back and he, he, he just, he was waving his hands frantically. And he said, I don't believe anything you say. I don't do nothing for nothing. And a lot of people don't realize the internal benefits that you're better off, even if you're grappling with really challenging situations. I mean, why good things happen to good people is a book about folks who have had very, very difficult times, very difficult losses, very, very difficult disease courses. Um, and, um, and yet even there, if they can go beyond the bitterness and the hostility and the rumination uh, and the protracted stress, and if they can just somehow figure out a way to do something for other people, it's great for other people, but it's also great for, for themselves. So we have programs where people, even with chronic back pain, if, as long as they're able to do this, you know, We'll go out and do some um, volunteering. Uh, we have mended hearts. People who've had major heart problems will go into the units and talk with new patients and explain to them kind of what they have ahead of them. And they they find so much. The AA is like this, you know, with the twelve steps. You know, the twelve step is, you know, you want to you want to help others. Uh, 
and, and so I've been studying this for many, many years now. I've written a lot of books, a lot of papers. And I'm happy to say that um, there's a phase two coming up because my work has influenced the UK quite a bit. And the national health system is now doing something called social prescribing. And this is covered by the UK government. So there are these, in the clinical settings, there are these advisors, these, these individuals, and they help folks determine, you know, so where could they be making, making a difference in their community? What could they be doing? They could be working for the Alzheimer's Society, or they could be working in this way or that way. What could they be doing that would be making a difference that would make them happy? So they set all this up and it's working quite well. So um, in a couple of weeks, uh, I actually have a guy named Dan Morris from the University of Michigan um, uh, Business School who's, who's taking the lead on this. The same with that business school there. It's a great, the, it's a great business school. It's the uh, Stephen Ross School of Business. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, only, so, only great people go to the yeah, business school yeah. at the University of Michigan. Yeah, so this guy has, has, has decided that he's making this his life's work and he's been to England He's, he's, he's getting all these Fulbright fellowships. And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a, 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 a meeting online, a Zoom meeting of American leaders in healthcare systems like United Healthcare, who, who are beginning to see the value of encouraging patients to help others as, 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 as not quite as a prescription, perhaps that's too strong a word, but as a very therapeutic type measure. And, and, uh, um, and then we're going to work on uh, moving this into American healthcare. So uh, I think it's very, it's, it's time has come. And uh, if we can pull this off, uh, then it'll be worth the book. <laughs> I will tell you that my wife is a psychologist. And one of the things that she recommends uh, people to do when they're uh, feeling down, if you will, for lack of a better term, is to go volunteer. Yeah. Yeah, it works. I mean, you know, in, in, I mean, we actually did a little study with United Health. They wanted to get some survey data on this. So this was this is 2010, interviewing 5,000 adult Americans as to whether or not they had volunteered in 2009. About 41% had volunteered, um, and not oodles of time on average, just a hundred hours a year. So if you want to break it down, you know, a couple hours a week, maybe. Uh, so it was a pretty low threshold. And then we asked them, so did this make you feel healthier? About 70% said it made them feel more robust, physically healthier, which is interesting. Did it make you feel happier? You know, like 97% made me feel happier. Um, did it make you more resilient? Yeah, same thing. Did it make you more able to deal with, with, loss of disappointment, you know, some super high percentage. It even made people, they self-reported that they were sleeping better, that they had deeper friendships because their friends weren't just the people they hung out with, you know, or made trouble with, but their friends were more like Aristotle's friends, the good ones, the benevolent friends who sort of keep you on track when you're about to veer off. You can really form community around helping activities and that's better than, you know, having your head in the gutter. Um, so um, so um, why good things happen to good people uh, with a forward by Pastor Otis Moss, which I co-wrote with Jill Nymark, who's a popular science writer. That was, that did very well. It came out in 2007. 
And I remember one of my old professors from the Divinity School of Chicago, Don Browning, who was a psychologist of religion and a kind of pastoral care guy. He called me and he said, you know, it's the first time that he's ever had a student from the Div School with a book in Barnes and Noble. So that was nice. But, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer in that. So, I mean, the things I, I believe in, I, I really believe in um, what I call give and glow. I'm actually writing a book now called The Giver's Glow. Um, again, not to be naive about it, it's not foolproof, um, but if you look at it as a whole from many, many different methodological perspectives, it's good to be good. And science seems to confirm that, just as all the great spiritual traditions do. You know, um, I mean, when I was a, when I was at St. Paul's, okay, well, this is interesting. Um, you'll, you'll you'll find actually in, in God and Love on Route 80, there's an image of um, the um, the Golden Rule, uh, which is a uh, a wonderful painting by a New England artist. Um, and the idea behind that painting is that you whatever spirituality is worth having has something to do with living by the positive version of the golden rule. And it's not just um, do not do unto others. So you can go home at night and feel pretty good if you didn't kick somebody in the shin, but it's, you know, actually using your creative imagination to help others and make a difference in the world. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big believer um, in, in that that's Norman Rockwell I'm referring to, by the way, who, uh, he actually said he came, he came up he, he came up to, to Concord from Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where his studio was, and uh, he asked us with that image, "Do you see the halo?" And there, actually, you can in the middle there's a white circle from the rabbi's beard around the clothing, the toddler, and then on the other side. And he said it's a little bit like surfing. He said you have to to catch a wave, you have to work really hard. So you have to do good. You have to work creatively. You have to make a point of helping other people. But at a certain level, you just catch the wave. The wave just catches you. And you don't have to paddle anymore. All you have to do, he said, is balance. Can you imagine that? All you have to do is balance. So if you can live your life with that kind of balance, you're in good shape. And then the, you know, the other thing is I, I, I really believe in um, the healing power of kindness and love. So that's why I have this center on compassionate care and we just won the Alpha Omega Alpha Award from, you know, just the highest award you can get in American medical education for professional identity formation because we figured out how to get this across to people. You know, and sometimes it's not easy because they, they get cynical, they get jaded, they lose the meaning. They, you know, but we've begun to figure this out and make it central. And 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 I believe in in trying to blur the line between work and play. So find your calling is really important to me. I'm a big believer in uh, some sort of source of inner peace, uh, whether that's the light, if you're a Brahma, Kamara type person, or whatever it might be, that some there's some connection that we have with that infinite mind, that original one mind. And if we can, if we can connect to it and, and be aware of it, uh, we will have greater peace and we won't be as affected by the crazy stuff that's going on around us. Um, and, and I, you know, I also believe very strongly in, in, you know, if you're going to have a family, try to raise a caring child. I studied at Harvard 
School of Education of Harvard. You know, so they 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 uh, they, they they concluded that American parents want their kids to be kind until they're like 13. And then it's all competition, you know. And when, by the time they get to college, it's all blown away, you know. And so, you know, my suggestion would be, you know, stick with kindness. You know, kindness before career might be a nice way of educating our kids. And there are actual techniques of, of educating children in this fashion, which, which we're studying a lot of. And, and then, of course, you know, having, having a, a peaceful knowledge of nature as a sacred gift. I'm, I'm very much into naturalism. And uh, always was, even as a kid, you know, in the woods of St. Paul's, just you know, reading the mystics and stuff under the pine trees, um, staying away from the hockey games. But, um, you know, that's a big thing. And then I think also humility. I believe I believe humility is the greatest spiritual virtue because humility doesn't mean humiliation. It just means I'm going to live my life in such a way that there's enough room for you. Sounds like Mr. Rogers, who, by the way, was from Pittsburgh, and he was on my board for three years before he died. So I got to know Mr. Rogers a little bit. And if you saw the movie, that story about when he gets in the subway in New York is true because he told it to me. Oh, wow. So. so Stephen, you've yeah. had such an amazing career. And before we wrap up, uh, we just want to say thank you. We've worked with your publisher. And so we are going to be able to give away five copies of God and Love on Route 80 to our listeners. And they can go on to our social media pages to learn how to get a copy. Um, we would love to have you back whenever your schedule allows it, maybe after you're done with your next book, because I feel like we okay. really just kind of touched you know, the tip of the iceberg and this podcast is really about kindness, empathy, um, understanding one another. So we would love to, anytime you're able to come back, to come and speak with us, and we can dig in a little bit deeper. Be happy to do it. Thanks, Mallory. And you, you all do a great job. I'm having fun. Oh, great. Thank you. Stephen, it's really been our pleasure to have you here. Uh, we, we always end with the same three questions. I'll start with the first one. If you had to pick a quote or a mantra, that you feel defines you or that you live your life by, what would that be? Yeah, it is Eleanor Roosevelt. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. I mean, you have to believe in your dreams and, and there are going to be a lot of obstacles. I mean, don't pretend that doing the stuff I do in modern academic medical centers doesn't raise a few eyebrows. And I wrote God in Love and Route 80 in part because I wanted uh, you know, a lot of really hard-nosed scientists to feel disinhibited so that they could actually talk themselves about moments of synchronicity when they really wondered, is there something mysterious going on here? And, um, you, you know, so you have to, you don't want to be overwhelming. You don't want to be too strong by any means. So I have a kind of a light, mirthful touch. But yeah, you know, you have to believe in the beauty of your dreams. The other great quote, you want two quotes or three? Second quote, Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian after whom a street is named it near Columbia. He said, and this is all metaphorical, it's just language of the time, but the children of light must have the cunning of the children of darkness, but none of their malice. So don't be naive. You know, I mean, evil is quite real. I'm not Pollyannish about human nature. 
I, I like human nature when it's somehow connected with things spiritual and positive golden rule ish and even invaded uh, you know by this kind of dynamic but uh in and of itself you know it's a mixed bag for sure and it, it, you know it, it it seeks oneness as often by elimination as it does by harmony hence my ted talk so i you know so i'm not i'm not silly about human nature and so reinhold niebuhr was a was a realist uh, he believed in love more than anything, but he was a realist. So the children of light must have the cunning of the children of darkness, but none of their, none of their malice. The uh, second question that we always end uh, with is if you had to relive one day, what would that be? You know, I think uh, it would be more than one day. <laughs> it would be a lot of days because <clears throat> look, you know, I, 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 I talk about these things. I, I get up early in the morning. I meditate, I pray, I, visualize my encounters. That's why good things happen. You know, I really do work that. I think about the people I'm going to see and does this person need care, frontation or compassion or whatever it might be, um, mirth. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just as capable as the next person of driving to work and falling full chested on my horn because the poor guy in front of me happened to have the audacity to slow down the yellow light. In other words, you know, we all, it's it, it, these little things that make life worth living. There are also a lot of little things that make life uh, treacherous. And they, a lot of times they just come from our own being and, and we are, we're just not quite where we need to be. So life is a, is a journey and it's a growth curve. And um, we're, we're all, we're all, uh, on the path. So the final question that we end with is if you hit a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would that be? Yeah, that's really hard. That's really hard. Um, I guess it would be Mississippi John Hurt, who was a great African-American blues guitarist and singer. And the song of his I like the most is Beulah Land, B-E- a-U-L-A-H, which is the, it's a Negro spiritual, and that means heaven. So uh, I, happen to hear, I happen to hear Mississippi John Hurd at the Folk Center on West 4th Street when I was a kid. He's long since deceased. Uh, but uh, I got a mother in Beulah Land. She outshines the sun, and it goes on. And he, he plays it with such heart, and the line blurs between this world and the next. Yeah, I like I like Beulah Land. Great. I'm going to go ahead and add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can go ahead and check it out and hear your theme song featured on that playlist. Oh, good. Yeah, you'll love it. I mean, he's he, John Hurt was so great. When I was at Reed, by the way, we invited uh, Jesse Fuller, who wrote uh, San Francisco Bay Blues, to come up to Oregon, and he did. He drove a station wagon from San Francisco to Portland, and he gave a concert, and he did the greatest rendition of San Francisco Bay Blues with all of his crazy instruments and his kazoos, and I love those guys. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're excited to have you come back and continue this conversation, but we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. 